Well, hello. Welcome back to Between the Lines, the podcast. I'm Jay Lind, and I'll be your host. This is episode 10 of the podcast, and the BTL audience just continues to grow. We now have listeners in 10 countries. A new listener in Sierra Leone this week signifies our arrival in Africa. Pretty awesome. We're also being heard in 27 states and our nation's capital, so people are continuing to listen, and it's working. I hope this is only the beginning. As usual, I got a more than a few calls and emails and texts after the latest episode, letting me know that the podcast is making a difference in people's lives. Special BTL shout outs this week go to Kathleen and Neil, who appreciated my interview with Leah last week. Anyway, if anybody else out there has been listening and learning, please remember to rate, review, and follow Between the Lines on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It only takes a few seconds and a couple clicks, and it really makes a difference in how often the podcast gets suggested to other people looking for something new and interesting to listen to. And remember, the bigger the audience, the bigger the impact. So please donate a few seconds of your time after you finish listening to this episode to help ensure that Between the Lines, the podcast continues to make a difference. And if you'd like to do a little more to help support my mission to destigmatize addiction and to spread kindness, positivity, and hope, please click the support the podcast link at the end of the episode notes and make a small monthly contribution to help maintain the quality and consistency of the podcast. Nothing would make me happier than to continue putting out quality content on the podcast for months and months and months and months. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about the podcast, or if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, you can click the send in a voice message link at the end of the episode notes and leave me a message. Or you can just drop me an email at between the lines memoir at gmail.com. I will address all questions, comments, or concerns right here on the podcast when appropriate and with your consent, of course. But more important than any of that stuff, thank you all for listening today. This week, I will be interviewing Will. But before we get to that, this is the good news. Good news. The good news story this week via Syracuse News comes from the great state of New York, where 1,000 acres of forest is set to be returned to the Onondaga Nation. To be clear, 1,000 acres is only a sliver of the Onondaga Nation's 2.5 million acre territory that was originally stolen from them, but the parcel of land being returned to them by the state of New York is an area considered sacred by the nation. And this is the first time that any land has been returned directly to a New York tribe. Again, this is not enough, but it is progress and a move in the right direction, if you ask me. And that's what makes this the good news for today. Now let's get to the interview already. So my guest today is Will. I met Will about six years ago during my final stint at an intensive outpatient rehab program here in Chicago. 
but I haven't seen Whaler spoken to him very often since then. But we recently reconnected and met for coffee, and I was almost instantly reminded of the strong bond that Will and I shared in rehab years ago, as we both struggled to fight back from rock bottom. And I immediately invited him to be a guest on the podcast. Since Will walked out of the doors of rehab, he has, like most people trying to beat alcoholism and addiction, like me, uh, briefly left the road to recovery from time to time. But I was happy to hear that Will seems to have steered himself back to center and has been happy and healthy in sobriety for quite some time now. I will let Will tell you the rest of the story. But before we get to that, here are a few things you should know about him. Will grew up in a a small town in another Midwestern state nearby here, but he has made Chicago his home for the past 20 years. He has two wonderful parents who've given him and his older brother all the love and support any child could hope for. And he grew up being a good kid who hated being in trouble. Will eventually moved on to a small conservative college where he majored in philosophy. And then he put that philosophy degree to good use down in South Beach for a few years before moving to Chicago. Also, Will loves baseball, but he makes a better fan than he does a ball player. In fact, Will's very first season of Little League Baseball got off on the wrong foot, so to speak. The first time Will hit the ball out of the infield, he pivoted and ran directly to third base. And then he made the turn and headed towards second before the right fielder lapped the ball into the infield and Will was forced out at the base he later learned was appropriately called first base. Anyway, enough of my jibber-jabber. Let me introduce you all to Will. Welcome to the podcast, Will. How you feeling today? I feel great. Thanks, Jay. Good, good. I'm glad to have you here. And I can't believe we didn't talk about this years ago, uh, but now that I know that you're a big baseball fan, I got to ask you, and there is a correct answer to this, Cubs or Sox or some other team? Uh, it's Cubs for me. Oh. <sighs> So I had a feeling you were going to be on the other side of that one. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is going to have to be the end of the interview, buddy. (laughs) Nice talking to you. (laughs) We'll appreciate you having me on. No, no, no. We're forgiving and non-judgmental in the program, right? This is like a thing I have to get used to. I have to even love the Cubs fans, too. I'll get over it. Um, But also, no wonder you started drinking as Cubs fan. It's uh, a, I don't blame them. There's a lot of years, a lot of years (laughs) of suffering. That's probably a big part of it. Uh, all right. Well, let's just jump right into it. Uh, start from the beginning. Um, when did you when did you start drinking, and, and when do you feel like it became a problem for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, uh, drinking started kind of that sophomore year of high school, um, 15, 16, uh, in those ages. Um, you know, grew up, uh, saw adults drinking uh socializing through alcohol uh always looked like a pretty good time uh seemed like an adult uh activity 15 16 starting to get those legs under you starting to you know think you're maybe uh a little older than you are looking forward to being an adult and uh getting a little bit of freedom uh with the friends and uh so that was definitely where it started um and I liked it from moment one Uh, through middle school. I think I felt like I didn't fit in. I didn't mature as fast as some of the other guys I was friends with. Um, I was, you know, I was still a little kid. 
uh, and you know, some, some of the people around me started to grow up a little bit. And uh, I definitely felt like I had kind of lost my place a little bit. And I think some insecurities settled in there. I think getting into high school, I think drinking becoming an option um, started to sort of calm some of those insecurity voices, some of the anxiety and sort of found an identity uh, with drinking. Um, you know, it, it allowed me, I think, personality-wise to, um, you know, uh, cut through some of the, you know, again, like I said, the insecurity, those voices that say, don't do that, or people might think you're silly or goofy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, people seemed to like being around me when I was drinking, and I felt better uh, after a couple of drinks. Um, and that was pretty instant. Right. And so I think that's another, that's kind of a common endpoint that we hear um, in meetings and rehab and stuff um, for, for drugs and alcohol is like a social anxiety kind of thing. And it's uh, like that social lubricant where at first all of a sudden you feel a little bit more comfortable and not so anxious about everything you're saying and doing and how people are, are judging you and you're fitting in. And in some ways, uh, it makes you like one of the cool kids, uh, you know, it's in instant uh, entry into the, the cool kid category because you're like, you know, drinking and partying and, and whatnot. Yeah, that cool kid identity, right? Right. Uh, definitely felt like having some drinks, being up for some drinks, uh, you know, trying to be the, you know, the person coming up with the plan or whatever else mm -hmm. it gave me. Yeah, what, what I thought at the time was a little bit of cool kid identity. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I held on for that, I think, too long, I think. Sure. And then and then uh, when when did it shift from that? Um, which is like, you know, kind of innocent underage drinking kind of thing like that, that a lot of kids, uh, you know, go through. When did it shift to something that you felt like, uh, wait a minute, I might be different than uh, than the other people that are, you know, out partying with me or or. Uh, you know, drinking, whether it's in, in college or afterwards or what, where was your, your point where you kind of felt separate from the, the regular Joes? Yeah. I, I mean, pretty early on, I actually had a moment where I, I looked at my drinking as potentially problematic. I think, you know, this, the school I was in, we, you know, we had people come and talk to us about alcoholism and drinking. And I actually had a minute where I thought, I don't know that my drinking looks very normal mm -hmm. uh, as they talk about, you know, problematic drinking and whatever else. I think I identified pretty early on that I thought, you know, mine probably didn't look very normal. I, I liked to drink a lot. I was able to drink more than most of my friends. Mm -hmm. um, I, again, I found identity in that. And I think mistakenly thought it was sort of cool guy identity. Right. Um, but uh, there was a moment late in high school where I talked to my parents and I said, I think maybe I have a problem. I actually took some time and didn't drink. Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't stick for very long um, and went back to it, drank through college, went through phases in college where I drank alarming amounts, mm -hmm. like in a night, um, would be able to, you know, handle a lot of alcohol function, sort of pretty much remember things uh, and thought it was fun party guy. Yeah. Like binge, binge drinking, but maybe not every day and, uh, 
but and you still manage to you know do your do what you need to do go to class and get all that stuff done so it's a little harder to say you know what this is a, such a huge problem if you're still kind of functioning and making it yeah and i think that was sort of always the issue i had with really identifying it as a problem i was always able mm -hmm. to get pretty good grades right uh, always able to handle you know my responsibilities um and drinking was sort of this other thing that i did uh, once that was all kind of settled. Um, I think, you know, getting through college, like you mentioned, I lived down in South Beach for a while. There's definitely a lot of, you know, drinking and good times had down there. Um, but again, there was, you know, a good mix of responsibility and getting through everything. And, um, you know, post South Beach, moved up to Chicago, um, ended up in a relationship with a girl. We found out we were going to have a baby very quickly mm -hmm. into that relationship. Um, and I think there's been a theme in my life where I'm focused on taking care of those around me a little bit better than I am taking care of myself. Yeah. Um, I at least knew how to do that better than taking care of myself. I don't think I get any sort of gold star for that. I just think <laughs> it was something that, you know, I was able to do better, uh, recognize how to do. And, um, you know, in that moment, I, my thoughts were about, you know, my, you know, kid that I was going to have and the girl and wanting to do the right thing, whatever mm -hmm. that meant. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, had a pretty traditional upbringing and, you know, the right thing meant get married and, you know, create a life for, you know, this new family. Right. The reality is that relationship was not a good fit either way. Um, and those years together were stressful having a kid before I think, well, I know before I was, ready with my maturity. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to scramble to get, you know, financially things in place. And those were hard and stressful years trying to make a relationship with work with something that wasn't a good fit and trying to get my life to work with my new reality. Right. And drinking through those years, I think started to look different. I think the fun times were less fun. Uh, drinking became more of a crutch and a constant um but again able to build a nice career for myself was able to do a good job for my clients um and i think being able to handle responsibility and keep you know the life that other people saw afloat mm -hmm. always kept me from feeling like it was i didn't think i was an alcoholic alcoholism right. always looked like something different something darker scarier I don't think I could have told you exactly what I thought it looked like. I just was very certain it looked like something other than what I looked like. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us, we imagine it like, and especially if we're still trying to kind of either consciously or subconsciously convince ourselves that we don't have a problem. You think of, you know, uh, alcoholism or addiction, like, well, well, I'm not drinking in the morning. Right. I don't, uh, I'm not skipping work and I'm not, I didn't, I didn't lose my job. I didn't get DUI. I wasn't arrested. I'm not beating my wife or, whatever, because that's, those are the easily identifiable, um, horrible things that can happen uh, uh, because of alcoholism and addiction. And well, I, I'm going to work, um, I'm all done, a regular, a regular job, I'm making enough money. Um, and I, you know, I drink after work, you know, even if it's too much, sometimes I overdo it, but I don't, I'm not an alcoholic. Alcoholics have to drink every day or they get the shakes and they, whatever. And sometimes, uh, you know, that's true at the, you know, late, you know, late stages of alcoholism and addiction, but uh, it looks different in the beginning. And it's easy for us, I think, to rationalize it and, 
and think in a way during those stages. I know that's what I was doing. It sounds like that's similar to what uh, you were going through. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think, um, yeah. And I think you also do, you know, I did a really good job of surrounding myself with other people who liked to drink too much yep. and liked to party. And there was always other people that I thought maybe had a problem. Absolutely. Um, you know, but I was, I was still keeping it together. Yep. That's um, another, you know, so, so I thought, right. Yeah. That's um, another common thing there. Yeah. You, so if, if you're surrounded yourself with uh, people who aren't like that, it makes your, your problems stick out and it's hard to ignore it for them, for the people around you and for yourself to ignore it. Uh, it gets harder and harder. But if you got people around you who are like you or worse, then you can always go, well, I, I'm doing all right. Look at it. That's what everybody does. And in fact, they do it worse than I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, at, you know, there was a, you know, there was a mix of friends, right? There were those that, you know, were the bigger partiers and there were those that definitely really had their stuff together. Mm -hmm. And I think what I found, you know, so cutting back here a little bit. So back to that, you know, my marriage and that relationship that got to a point where it clearly wasn't working. Uh, we separated got divorced and you know my daughter moved back to where we were from originally with my ex right um and I went through the shame and disappointment of not being able to make that marriage work right is how I was thinking about it um the loneliness of my daughter being uh you know several hours away mm -hmm. um and trying to adjust to a life where it was, you know, get in the car every other weekend, right? You do the drive, you get her for a couple of days um, and really trying to navigate that disappointment and that loneliness. And, you know, I think I hit even another gear uh, in my alcoholism at that phase as I tried to navigate that. And that was at a point where my friends who were more put together, uh, very put together, started having some conversations with me. There mm -hmm. were nights where the drinking got very sad uh, and, you know, ugly. And- No more fun know, party guy. Yeah, that, that had, you know, that, that had gone away at yep. some point. You know, I, I don't know when exactly that was, but there yeah. was definitely, right? It wasn't that anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, drinking felt, looked different. It wasn't a leaving anything anymore. It wasn't, mm -hmm turning me into that more fun, cool guy, uh, you know, that it never probably turned me into, but you know, it wasn't any of that anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah. And so, you know, there was definitely right. An advancement in my, in my process and, you know, move that forward a little bit. I got into a relationship very quickly. Uh, I wasn't healed or ready or a very good version of myself at that point. I was not, um, yeah, I was just not in a good place. Post-divorce, getting used to life, visiting, my, you know, only getting my daughter every other weekend, doing that drive every other weekend. Ended up in a relationship with a girl kind of right away uh, to try to help, I think, alleviate that loneliness. Um, I was not in a personally very good place. Um, and that relationship you know, she deserved a better version of myself than I was giving through those years. Three or four years in that relationship, um, it ended, not surprisingly. And 
at that point I was left with all of the feelings of loneliness and shame and disappointment and all of the things that I hadn't been dealing with as a result of the divorce. And um, I ended up uh, getting pulled over for a DUI with my daughter in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, And it inserted bottom into my story. Yep. Um, And, you know, uh, thankful that the circumstances were, you know, me getting pulled over and not hurting anybody. Right. Um, or, you know, or anything worse. Um, but uh, that moment, you know, I, I knew I wasn't in particularly good shape before I got in the car to go pick her up. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been dealing with that breakup and drinking too much for a couple days straight. Mm-hmm. And it had even slipped my mind that I was supposed to, to have her that weekend. Um, and so I made an effort to get my ex to switch weekends. Uh, they had plans locked in place. And I convinced myself that I was sort of fine. Right. And could do it. Um, and, uh, you know, um, sadness, drinking too much, it interferes with judgment. Uh, right. And, um, yeah, and made a terrible error in judgment, uh, got pulled over. I made it all the way to pick her up, made it halfway back here to Chicago, mm-hmm. got pulled over, taken to jail. My ex and her new husband had to come pick up my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I spent, you know, the night in jail yeah. and had to sober up there and put my head in my hands and figure out how my life possibly ended up here. Yeah. So that's, that's shortly thereafter is when I met you. And uh, for the people who know, know more about my story, like a lot of those things um, I can relate to. And that's part of why I kind of, uh, you know, right away felt this connection with you and wanted to, wanted to help you. You know, I was a little further along. I'd already done the inpatient for, five weeks and, you know, six weeks of IOP, you know, I've been, I've been working this for a long time, you know, since I found myself in jail. Um, and I knew that it, uh, it got better for me over that time. Um, but I could see, I could see on your face, uh, and in what you were saying, uh, you know, how, how horrible you were feeling in that moment. And I, and I recognized it, that's for sure. Um, it, it was really like a, a sudden, um, you know, crash with, with rock bottom, um, without crashing, luckily, like you said, uh, that, that got you, got you there. And then eventually, uh, as part of that into the, uh, IOP program, um, at Hazelden and through that program, how do you think that, uh, what was your experience like, um, in IOP? Yeah, the experience there at Hazelden was, it was exactly what I needed at the time. You know, I, I went into my interview there, didn't hold anything back, right? Tried to give a very honest assessment of, you know, my drinking and my life and, um, you know, basically said help, you know, what, right. what do I need? What would you recommend? Um, and they recommended that program. And um, I was ready for a change. I was, I think, as you recognized in me, I think I was, I was a little terrified. Mm-hmm. of 
just where I was finding myself and what the rest of my life was going to look like. Um, I knew very clearly I did not want the rest of my life to look like the inside of that jail cell. I knew I didn't want the rest of my life to continue hurting those who loved me and cared about me. I spent a week with my parents and saw the fear and sadness that, you know, my choices were putting on them. Right. Um, Thinking back to the conversations my friends were having with me over those years prior, um, Mm -hmm. seeing uh, the concern that they had. And, you know, I think everyone felt somewhat helpless because I was the alcoholic. I was the one that was in a position to, you know, make changes uh, or figure it out. And all other people could do is try to listen, point me in the right direction, offer me love, support, encouragement. I, like I have throughout my whole life, had as much of that as anybody could ever need. Me too. Uh, yeah, me too. And that's another reason why I wanted to have you have you on the podcast. I think that that's important, an important thing for people to hear. And I think, especially for the loved ones of addicts and alcoholics, that there's a no, it's a very normal uh, response for them, uh, especially our parents, I think, to to blame themselves or you know look back over to say what they could have think about what they could have done or what they should have done or what they didn't do. And, and, you know, you know, sort of put it on them that, that they, they, they could have made a difference and they could have changed it or stopped it or cured it. Uh, and the truth is they can't. Um, and it's, it, and it also, there's people become uh, problematic drinkers and drug users and addicts and alcoholics who have really great supportive families and friend groups and the, you know, this whole support network, it's uh, in place, it can still get you, you know? Like, it doesn't matter how great all your family and friends uh, are, um, it, that doesn't stop you from getting cancer. Uh, no matter, you know, how great everybody is around you and how great your life is, you can still get cancer. And no matter how great your parents are and how great your friends are and how great your support system is and how smart you are, that doesn't stop you from becoming an alcoholic or an addict either. But um, I certainly understand why people blame themselves, people that aren't us, you know, uh, but it's really sad. And I think it's important. That's why I want, I like people hearing stories like yours or like mine to know, uh, that it's not their fault. It's, it was out of their control. The truth is they did everything they can. Yeah, there's no question about it. And I think, you know, I, I think me probably like a lot of other alcoholics, I did a pretty good job trying to shield people from the reality you know i think i think there's there were only a few people that i think saw how sad i was right and how potentially problematic it might be um but you know again i was able to keep the job and write good yeah. good reviews for my clients and you know have good processes for them and i think it was confusing to some people that i really maybe did have a problem because i was able to keep it just far enough away and I it was getting harder and harder mm-hmm. to do that as I continue to I think get you know further down the road of addiction um but yeah I think you know for me everybody stepped up I think in the way that they knew how mm-hmm. uh, or you know could think of to do and it was going to take some bottom for me to realize I had a problem a real problem that needed immediate fixing Right. And that incident with my daughter 
getting pulled over served as that. And then I think, you know, we met right at Hazleton and went through that program uh, together. And, you know, I took sobriety very seriously. Um, but even in sitting in that program and the months after, I wrestled with whether or not I actually felt like I was an alcoholic, even with all of the information in front of me, the reality of where my life was, you know, I started to feel better so quickly once I quit drinking and it led me down these roads of maybe, maybe it's more depression and anxiety. Maybe it's not actually alcoholism, maybe, you know, with therapy and these other things that are helping now, right? maybe it wasn't so much that I was an alcoholic. Maybe it was, I was using alcohol as a tool to, you know, medicate these other things. Mm -hmm. Maybe someday it could possibly look normal. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I went 14 months sober first round, not a drop. Quitting drinking was relatively easy for me. Mm -hmm. I think I was scared to death of what I had done. And I think moreover, I needed to make everybody around me feel better. Yeah. And the only way I knew how to do that was to be sober. Yep. Because then I had fixed a problem that everybody could identify and say, okay, that problem's fixed. He's good. We don't, my mom didn't have to worry so much. My dad didn't have to worry so much. My friends didn't have to worry so much. And right. It allowed me to alleviate the concern of everybody around me. In that, I felt better. I was doing great. Life was good. But it, like I said, those voices come in of maybe I'm not actually an alcoholic. Maybe it was these other things. Yeah, now I'm healthy again. Now I'm healthy and happy mentally, emotionally again. Uh, so maybe I can handle it. Yep. And, you know, tried to bring drinking in on a positive note, right? Mm-hmm. Tried to, you know have a, you know, have a drink with somebody close to me and see how that went and, you know, set up some boundaries so that nobody was worried about it. You have a couple drinks here and there and whatever else. And it doesn't take long to figure out that, you know, an alcoholic's drinking never looks like other people's uh, that are not alcoholics. And, um, you know, it wasn't some fun, nice thing to have back in my life. It quickly found ways to start becoming a crutch again. It was on my mind, wanting a drink, even if I wasn't having the drink. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, it took, you know, I spent most of the past six years sober, but there were runs of a couple months here and a couple months there where I toyed with the idea of trying to figure this drinking thing out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't work. No, I mean, that. I think that's, uh, again, uh, something that I try to make sure uh, people hear on the podcast is the, the idea of a relapse being kind of a normal a part of a natural and normal part of recovery for, for most of us um, because of exactly how you just described it is uh, you don't want it to be true, really, that you are an alcoholic or an addict. So once things get better, you, you prove that you could stop for a while, right? So that must be mean something. Um, and it wasn't even that hard to stop because you need, you had a problem to solve. 
And so now you got to go back out, like we say, often uh, in a meeting or something, that uh, to do a little more research <laughs> to find yeah. find out. And uh, I mean, without exception, a little more research uh, tends to show us that uh, it was actually it's it's worse than you thought, <laughs> not 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 better. And you can't do it. And sometimes you got to do that two, three, four, or five times, you know. Uh, and and that's pretty common. But you know, in doing that research, because you've had treatment, because you've had therapy, because you've been to meetings, because you've done work in steps, uh, you can recognize the signs. I, this is, I guess, just my theory. It's, it helped me stop those slips and stop those relapses before they spiraled into another bottom uh, because I knew enough, right? I had enough information now that to, to kind of catch myself and get back in and ask for help. It wasn't, it wasn't nearly as hard asking for help uh, uh, and starting again, uh, you know, and during those relapses after I've had some, some treatment. Yeah. And, you know, and I think hearing, right. Those stories, right. Hearing the stories you've been sharing through the podcast, um, you know, and touched on in your book and, you know, that was helpful for me, you know, so for me, I started at Hazelden. I went through that and, in, you know, intensive outpatient, uh, I went to meetings for a little bit, um, I stuck in therapy with my therapist for a while. That was my preferred treatment. Right. Um, it was one-on-one, you know, there was lots of, you know, dialogue back and forth. Um, but, you know, from, you know, probably six months on in my sobriety journey out of the gate, I pretty much did it alone. Right. And, you know, my you know, slips, relapses, whatever you want to call them, you know, they didn't feel like that. It felt like me just making a decision to try to, have a couple of drinks and see what it was going to look like. Mm-hmm. And it constant it, every time it brought back in the feelings of depression and anxiety and all the voices that had been quiet while I was sober came back very quickly. And it started reminding me of what my life looked like again, before I quit. And yeah. That's, yeah. That's the horrible truth of it. Is that often it brings the, the relapse just, takes you right back to the feelings you had at the bottom and that just makes you want to drink and use more like it's a really horrible it's the opposite of what you you're hoping would happen that you know when you try again yeah completely and so you know so for me I was you know I would just make a decision again all right this isn't good I don't like to feel this way I can do better let's do it and um you know but again lots of times it was around you know somebody saw me drinking again and expressed concern. I was like, all right, I I can't make everybody nervous. I can't make everybody worried about me again. And, you know, so the first few rounds now looking back, it really felt like I was doing it almost more for everybody else. And finally, you know, I've just hit 30 months uh, in sobriety again. And for the first time I hit 30 months. Nice. And, um, this time it was about me. It was about the life that I want. It was about the future that I want for me, for my daughter, for, you know, whoever I, you know, share my life with, uh, for my parents, um, you know, all of that, but it was about me wanting it for me and to experience all the good things I always assumed would be part of my life. And it's felt different this time. Yeah. Uh, I think that they, you know, there's like a common, uh, you know, phrase or saying in AA, they often say like, you know, it's, it's a selfish program, which sounds terrible because I think it's, you know, we were all so often so selfish in our addiction and alcoholism. 
but it is it, it for it to work it kind of has to be selfish and you know obviously the the rewards spread out past you but in order for it to work for it to really work you got to be really focused on doing it for you i mean a lot of people get in there and they get started for somebody else uh or you know just to appease somebody or because the court made them do it or whatever it is um and so that's sometimes that's good you need that to get in there until you learn to do it for yourself and i think that's kind of what happened uh, with both of us yeah no question right i i needed to be able to step away from drinking in order to see that there was a different way to go through life so those first 14 months of sobriety that hazel did help me get and you know hitting my bottom helped me get mm -hmm. were vitally important to my process um you know hearing other people didn't have so much of a straight line either in their process has been helpful because mine definitely wasn't. Uh, and I definitely beat myself up about that. But I think, you know, I think you touched on this in your last episode with Leah, you know, it's, it's a process and it's not about, you didn't ruin it just because you had a couple drinks, right? Like you're still moving through your process. And I think ultimately, you know, my process got me to a point where I was able to again get sober, but do it for me. Yeah, and I needed those steps to get there. Um, and you know, I'm I'm thankful again that you know my bottom, I I hurt my daughter, I caused psychological damage that you know we are still working on repairing. Sure. There was pain and other things, but I didn't take anybody else's life. I didn't you know, um, you know, physically hurt anybody and, you know, left me in a position to try to, you know, really undo or work through, you know, the hurt and pain I caused to those around me. That process has been valuable uh, to me in my recovery. And, you know, so a lot of those early things you learn in Hazleton and meetings, um, they're important. And they're yeah. taught by people who have done it and know what they're doing and talking about and, you know, so those, those early days taught me lessons that I've continued to use and lean on. Me too. Yeah. I think that's uh, the big part of it is that looking in the mirror, you know, and, and being able to, you know, look at yourself as the problem, you know, and not, you know, making it, you're not blaming other people, not blaming other things or events in your life or, you know, circumstances, but looking at you and your character and what you can do, you know, uh, to, to become a better person, which you know, I think the 12 steps um, are, are good for every person, whether you, you're an addict, an alcoholic, you never drank or you never did drugs in your life, it doesn't matter. There's steps to, you know, like to growing, to looking at yourself and your behavior and your life and your resentments and your trauma and processing them and dealing with them in a healthy way and then helping other people. That's like a, that's like a great, you know, blueprint for, for growth and evolution for human beings. And I feel really lucky that I was, you know, I got to learn about that because now it's kind of like, you know, that, that's, that's what I love to do the most. Um, and it seems daunting at first, but uh, it pays off. And I think it's, we can see it paying off for both of us, which is really great. Uh, and, and 30 months, you know, it, it's amazing. The more, the more I, you know, catch up with, with some people that I, that I was either an inpatient or outpatient rehab with, or I knew in meetings early on, catching up with them later, we all know in there, like, you know, the, the truth is, is the sad truth that, you know, AA is a great program and, and Hazelden is like, you know, one of the best rehab places in the, in the world. Um, 
it's still lots of, it doesn't work for lots of people because uh, addiction and alcoholism is a really shitty insidious disease. You know, Mayo Clinic can't stop all the, you know, cure cancer and do the best surgery for everybody and remove the cancer and everyone will be fine. It, we know in that room, when you were sitting in those rooms in our small groups, you know, a couple of people in there are going to die from this disease. Uh, very few of us are going to be able to maintain some kind of sobriety and recovery long term. That's the sad fact. But some of us can and do. And hearing stories like yours and some of the other people who I'm uh, reconnecting with just makes me so happy. You know, there's a lot of sad stories and, you know, I don't, I'm not going to do a, a podcast about all the people who died. Uh, that would be counterproductive, I think. Uh, but it's a reality. Um, but the, but it's not the only reality. There are, there is recovery. It's possible. There's hope. And uh, even when, uh, you know, we, we certainly didn't feel like it was, uh, there was much hope back then. Um, let me just jump a couple of quick questions here, kind of move forward a little bit. Um, did you, so we've talked about kind of your, your struggles in recovery. How about, uh, you know, you, you, you haven't gone, like me, I sort of, uh, you know, slowly kind of wean myself off of meetings, but I, I go now here and there, you know, I go sporadically rather than regularly, like they say now, you know, like it's a huge red flag to anyone today. If you stop going to meetings, it's a bad sign. I get it. And that's, that's um, generally true, but you and I both uh, don't go to me. You don't go to meetings at all. I, I rarely go. Um, but you're still making it work and you seem, you know, from, from, uh, from my perspective here, it seems like you're really healthy and you're working a really healthy recovery. What kind of advice would you give to someone now, uh, based on your experience, what would you give, uh, advice would you give to addicts or alcoholics out there who are, you know, trying to find recovery or get back to recovery and, you know, get some of the, some of what you have. Sure. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those things where I recognize very early that I think I wanted to do the, the recovery process a little bit differently than anyone was really recommending it for me. Um, you know, meetings were good and helpful. It was helpful for me to see people that got sober, that were staying sober. Um, I think it is helpful to re remember that the disease is ugly and it's there and it will do serious damage to you and those around you if you fall out of recovery. Um, I found meetings I'm trying to find the right way to say this mm -hmm. thing for me i wanted my recovery to be forward looking as much as possible and for me forward looking was being healthy enjoying life sober um and figuring that out um and so I think for me, it's hard to feel like I have advice for anybody else who's recovering. I know that for me, I made a decision that I wanted to be sober mm -hmm. and that decision was serious enough. And it was with enough experience of what life looked like if I wasn't that I was ready. And I think I'm so, I was so exhausted yeah. by the life of being an addict um, that I was ready. And I was finally ready to do it for myself. And so for me, it was, it was exercise. It was daily walks. It was finding, right, positive things to take up my time and put my energy into. 
So for me, it was Spotify mm -hmm. and finding new music and walking, running, uh, primarily uh, those two things. Um, and then, um, you know, figuring out, um, you know, a big part of it was accountability. So as much as I didn't have meetings to hold me accountable or whatever else, it was sharing with my friends, right? Talking about sobriety when I was around them. The moment I stopped talking about sobriety and stopped talking about, you know, how much of a blessing it's been, mm -hmm. it's because I've either been thinking about drinking or I've started drinking. Again. Yeah, that's that pre-relapse uh, plan going on there. You, you, yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, it's very common. Yeah, that's what I was, I was, I was hoping you were going to get to because uh, I do think, and I agree with you, I think there's a lot of different ways that people can get, be, be in healthy recovery. Uh, but one thing that I think is almost uh, like it's, it's something that it's a necessary piece is the account, something to help you hold you accountable. If you're just going alone and you're the only person holding you accountable, that can't work. That's, that's what we were, we were doing before we went to rehab and trying to stop and being the only ones who know that we have a problem and it, and it doesn't, and we can't stop ourselves. So part of what AA does is gives you a community of people uh, that help hold you accountable. And if you don't have that, you gotta have something else, I believe. So what you said, which was what we, we talked about uh, the other day over coffee too, is that one of your steps um, this last time was um, be open, honest, tell everybody, tell your family, tell your friends what you're doing, why you're doing it. Um, be open and honest about it and talk about it. So, you know, the more people who know, the harder it is, uh, you know, for you to, to slip um, and to keep talking about it. And that, and that gives them permission to talk about it too, which is also healthy. Um, instead of it being this like secret behind the wall uh, thing that's going on. Um, so I think that's a big piece. And you did, and you do the other stuff that I, I feel like you've internalized some of those steps in the, in, in the program and some of the things that we learned at Hazelden and through therapy, you know, uh, and all those, and you just keep putting them to use. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. And yeah, and you know, I mean, that process of accountability through those close to you has been helpful. And I love it when people ask me about it. Yes, you know, there too. was a period of time where people didn't know, do we talk about it? Do we not talk about it? And honestly, that was, I think one of the things that I struggled with early in recovery is I felt like me being sober was a result of a problem. And therefore being sober was my flaw. Right. I couldn't drink anymore. And so I was unusual and had a problem and was flawed. And I thought the moment I shared with people that I was sober, the reaction was, whoa, you know, like, you know, he's flawed. There's a problem. Yeah, it's like, it's like a scarlet letter in that way. You know, like uh, you think, oh, if this guy, if you don't no, no thanks to the waiter. No, I'm not. You can take the wine glass. I'm not drinking. Oh, yeah. I wonder what this guy did. I wonder what's yeah. wrong with him, you know? Uh, but yeah, you get over that eventually. And, and from being around people who are supportive and loving, who once you do talk to them and you see the, the, react, the, re the real reaction is nothing like you were imagining uh, what people were thinking. There's no question. And it, you know, it, it took me longer than I feel like it should have to realize that not only is that not the reaction, but that living a life in sobriety is it's something grounded in strength 
and understanding and rooted in so many of the things that I really value and that so many of us value. And, you know, the reaction is way more positive and, you know, it opens the door to questions from other people that are wondering if they have a problem yep. and what, you know, what my journey looked like. And it, it opens the door to give back to other people's processes. Um, and, you know, but so, you know, that process of being accountable to those close to you and those around you and getting confident sharing that you're sober, it's been something that I've done these last 30 months differently than I did before. And right. it's been a really helpful part, I think of, you know, getting to 30 months and, you know, looking forward to, you know, more of that. Right. So yeah, I think eventually it becomes a, a source of pride uh, rather than shame. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. And it really is. I love talking about it, you know, and, and, um, and I, I like what you said about it, opening the door to, to help other people too. And uh, that's another big part that helps us, you know, regain some of our, our self-esteem that we may have lost, uh, you know, through our addiction or alcoholism. Um, all right, well, let's move to the fun, nice stuff, because I know you like to look forward, right? That's, that's what that's we're going to do. Uh, all right, so here's your chance to be an influencer. Well, tell my audience about something you've been reading, listening to, or watching, uh, any kind of art or something that you would recommend to, to my audience. All right, I got three that I'll touch on real quickly. All right. Uh, one, I know through being, uh, through following you on Instagram, you post street art. From yeah. time to time, uh, there's a street artist named Roa R O A uh, from Belgium. Um, who um, there's not that much known about him, but he's got several huge pieces around Chicago, uh, Logan Square, uh, Fulton Market, <clears throat> Bucktown. Um, so if you look up Roa, uh, he does large animal, and usually there's some level of, you know. Uh, living animal and decomposing animal um, and you know people have all sorts of ideas about what his messaging is but I think it's cool. one of those things where everybody can pick it up for themselves so definitely um, that and out. it's and I know your your audience is international and national so That's Georgia right. New York Miami uh, his stuff is all over the country and all over the world so cool um, secondly um, Lala Plus is coming up in Chicago later this month so I wanted to touch on an artist that's going to be at Lala uh, Sampa the Great. Uh, she is a, a rapper uh, born in Zambia, um, produces her music in Australia, uh, but she's going to be early on Thursday at Lala. So Lala afternoon, uh, but she, one of her songs was featured in uh, Ozark. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, so worth, worth a listen there. And then I watch a lot of TV, so I needed to touch on a TV show. Uh, only Murders in the Building is starting their second season. I'm so sure. great. It's, I just started watching the second season. recommending this to anyone. Uh, but uh, I didn't watch season one initially. Uh -huh. and, uh, I was missing out. It's Me really too. Great. Me too. It's exactly. I just watched the whole season one and it just started uh, the second season. It's, it's, uh, it's smart and hilarious. And, uh, you know, I grew up watching Martin Short and Steve Martin, like, you know, on Saturday Night Live and stuff back in the day, you know, like in the 80s. Uh, and to see them, and they're just as funny now. And Selena Gomez is an amazing actress. She is. She's, she's really, really, really good. She's perfect in that role. And yeah. uh, 
yeah, so so that's one that's been giving uh, giving us some joy over here. Great, thank you. Those are great recommendations. All right, so last step here before we end the interview, I always like to bring it back to uh, gratitude, uh, like I try to do at the end of every day as well. Uh, that's been a big part of my recovery to keep a healthy perspective on things. So uh, I'll talk about for a second what I'm grateful for, then I'll pass it off to you. So uh, this week, I have been thinking that uh, for a number of reasons, and I'm grateful for doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals everywhere. Um, I know it happens to everyone as they get older, but I have certainly had uh, way more interactions with healthcare professionals over the last 10 years than I had in the first uh, you know, 30, 40 years of my life. Um, it began with when my dad got sick uh, and dealing with uh, you know, the hospitals and doctors and hospice and all that, which all that were, were amazing, uh, gave my dad really great care. And then of course, um, for uh, then, then eventually in my recovery with therapists and substance abuse counselors and psychiatrists that I've been lucky enough to work with, and then now all the doctors that I finally uh, went to see once I cleaned up my act and started caring about myself again, uh, I've, I've, I've been to my doctor more in the last few years than I've, I've been to any doctor in, uh, in the rest of my life because I'm doing the right things and fixing some things that should have been fixed a long time ago and taking care of those things as well. And then on top of that, uh, as I was thinking about it, obviously during this uh, pandemic, uh, the, the, the healthcare professionals have been working so hard, risking their lives over the last, last couple of years plus. And, um, you know, so that's a big deal. So for, uh, for some reason this morning, I, when I was thinking about what, what I was grateful for, those are the things that uh, popped in my head, probably because I was uh, feeling sore and, uh, and old when I woke up and I realized I probably, uh, you know, need to keep taking care of myself and seeing the doctor for that to, to, to keep father time away. So that's At what I think before today. How about, how about you? At our age, our bodies have a way of reminding us uh, <laughs> of exactly those sorts of things. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, for me, it's, uh, it's something a little bit simple. I started my day with, uh, with our two dogs and I did not grow up with dogs mm -hmm. um, and did not know the amazing love and companionship that they provide, but uh, have two dogs in my life right now that um, I'm so thankful for and appreciate the relationships and the energy and uh, all the different things that they, that they bring to uh, our life here and our days. And um, yeah, thankful that, that that has come into my life and, and been a part of it recently. That's awesome. Good, I like that. Well, thanks for coming on, Will. It was great chatting with you. And I'm sure that uh, you sharing your story here will give some hope to others out there who are struggling in one way or another under this uh, strong thumb of addiction or alcoholism. Um, and uh, let's be sure to keep in touch this time. Let's not wait, uh, you know, three, four more years, all right? I like it. Thanks so much, Jay. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, now it's time for some thank yous and goodbyes. First of all, thanks again to Will for coming on the show today and for sharing his experience, strength, and hope with all of us. I most definitely benefited from listening to Will's story today, that's for sure. And if you too learned something or enjoyed what you heard, this is your chance to engage and participate. Just write a quick response to the question I've included with this episode, and let me know what you learned from Will's story. Also, 
be sure to rate and review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And click the support the podcast link if you're feeling it. Or just spread the word. Tell a friend if you have one or tell two friends if you have twice as many friends as I have. And again, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or if you'd like to tell your story on the podcast, feel free to click the send in a voice message link and leave me a message. Or just drop me a note at Between the Lines Memoir at gmail.com. But most of all, thanks for listening today. And in the wise words of my Uncle Dave, keep it simple, be humble, and hope for the best. See ya. Mm-hmm.